Hello everyone. A quick note before this inaugural episode. We first recorded this soon after the revelation that Ahmaud Arbery was actually murdered by two white men and had done nothing illegal but was targeted merely for being black. And then we re-recorded the intro to the discussion in order to include the initial news about the murder of George Floyd by four Minneapolis police officers. But since editing that, we have seen four nights of outrage and violence and are in the midst of the inevitable outcome when a disenfranchised group of Americans are fed up with a system unable and unwilling to see daily treatment of them as anything other than unjust, brutal racism. So although our discussion does not delve into this event specifically and doesn't do the entire topic nearly enough justice, our conversation is unfortunately even more apropos than anticipated and is hopefully at least a good start. If the U.S. government, the media, the legal system, and the church can't keep democracy alive, a podcast with two angry professors who think that America is better than this. It's time for a state sale. A podcast on American democracy. Hey, everybody. I am Lori Lattimore Volkman. I'm here with Brad Rayley, and welcome to our new podcast, Estate Sale. We're here to discuss how the media, the church, our government, our legal system can do better, should do better, what they're doing wrong, and how we'd like to fix it. <laughs> Today, we're going to tackle racism a historic blight on humanity the issue of racism in america is quite simple if you're a person of color you do not have the same access the same deference the same blind trust in you that white people enjoy but as an issue to solve it becomes much more complex because it is so embedded in so many areas of our society just in the past few weeks this is what we've seen Black man in New York City who was bird watching asked a white woman who had her dog off a leash to put the leash on the dog and abide by the signs that are clearly visible all around the park. Instead of following the law and doing what she was politely asked, she threatened immediately to call the police and tell them, quote, an African American is threatening me. Luckily, Michael Cooper videotaped the entire scene as she tried to lie on the 911 call, obviously assuming that police would show up and believe the white woman, not the black man. So on the completely over, pretty close to lynching scale of racism, we have two egregious cases of black men being killed by white men for absolutely no reason. We learned earlier this month that the suspicious death of Ahmaud Arbery, a young black man shot while jogging in a southern Georgian neighborhood on a Sunday afternoon, was done by a former cop and his son on a vigilante mission as they chased him down and shot him in cold blood. And then just this week, another video revealed that four white cops in Minneapolis arresting a black man on suspicion of forgery pinned him to the ground, held a knee on his neck as he yelled, I can't breathe, don't kill me. The cops didn't move, held him there for eight minutes, and ultimately choked him to death. And, as a racist side note on that, 
When supporters gathered in protest of this brutality, they were met with tear gas by police. Yet, contrast that with a bunch of right-wing nutcases in Michigan the week before who were protesting having to wear masks for COVID-19 protection, and they came with machine guns and got nothing. The president himself called those gun-toting protesters very good people who were just fed up. Yet, he called the George Floyd protesters thugs. Ladies and gentlemen, our racist-in-chief in action. Then, last week, in the uh, not-so-obvious-but-still-totally-racist category, Trump went on a bit of a bender about his predecessor, Barack Obama. First, he refused to hang the portrait of Obama in the White House, a centuries-old tradition among U.S. presidents. But in a more harmful move, Trump insinuated a conspiracy theory about Obama, floating it during a press briefing, that he called Obamagate, but one that he couldn't define even when asked, and that his staff and Fox News later had to try to explain away. They first came up with, well, Obama had planted Michael Flynn in the White House to ultimately get Trump in trouble with the FBI. Remember, Flynn is the former national security advisor Trump fired for lying to the FBI under oath about his promise to relax sanctions to Russia if Trump got elected. And a man that Obama and his administration had actually warned the Trump administration about before taking office, told him not to trust him. The second attempt to explain Obamagate was to say that the Obama administration had unmasked Michael Flynn, had revealed his name from confidential documents. But turns out that Michael Flynn was never unmasked because his name was not confidential. But of course, all of this was designed to create a diversion for the press from Trump's own complete bungling of the coronavirus response. A response, by the way, that has now seen 100,000 American deaths. Far too many because of a total dereliction of duty as a leader. Before we digress into that abyss of incompetence, at the heart of Trump's constant attacks on Barack Obama, from his birtherism claims way back in 2011 to Obamagate now in 2020 and every nasty, disparaging remark in between, at the heart of this is just a true disdain for people of color. So Brad, <laughs> my question to you, really, really easy one, how did we get here? How did we go from electing our first African-American president to now more than three years of increased hate crime and racial violence across the country. Violence that is practically, even if not officially, endorsed by the current president of the United States. Some of the instinct is to say, this is Trump. And of course, Trump has not helped. There's no doubt. There's zero doubt in my mind that he has made this worse. I have for years always framed racism in the context of progressivism, that we were getting better, that there was, and, and because I genuinely believe that, my white privilege allowed me to believe that, that we were getting better. And, you know, Barack Obama was in some ways the culmination of that, that we could actually, you know, I, I like Chris Rock's statement at the time. He said, it isn't that black people somehow got better. It's that white people finally got smart enough to recognize that there were good black people that they could vote for. Right. Um, you know, so I was always framing this in the context of upwards and onwards, and this has made me rethink all of this. And so then I'm going back and looking at the origins of the Southern strategy, and then I'm thinking about 
you know, the Southern Baptists and uh, uh, there's, uh, you know, a couple of books on the Southern Baptists and Southern Evangelicals role in lynching and supporting segregation. The message they were telling to the black church is just, and Billy Graham did this too. He would say, don't fight for civil rights now because that's only going to come when we get to heaven. So you need to fight, you know, don't, don't alienate people. Don't fight for that. And you'll get your just rewards in heaven and everybody. Otherwise, you're expecting, uh, you know, perfection. And so that was a nice way to tell people, don't worry about being discriminated against and being discriminated and uh, lynched and, you know, stop from voting and stuff like that. Just, you know, wait till heaven. Um, so that's been there for the church. But then I start looking at it society wise and realize, I think it's, it's all of us. I mean, we've all grown up in a slaveholder society that white liberals could say, you know, we could do the thing and say, well, I'm progressive. And I think, you know, I supported black people getting the right to vote. (laughs) You know, I'm not sure how to see this outside of a much more broader systemic issue that is not uh, confined to the South at all. Um, That is our original sin that's never been dealt with. And Trump has just sort of, you know, pulled the facade away, maybe. But it's been there the whole time. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think white people in general have looked at the surface level of of improvement. And there is improvement. You know, I mean, we had the civil rights movement and we've we've had these areas where we can point to specifics and say, you know, more black people are going to college and getting degrees and getting jobs and having managerial and and CEO level roles in society and to show that improvement. We're not lynching people and we have more rights that are on the books and we have statistics that show that it's happening. But then at the same time, what's really going on is almost is almost worse because it's not obvious and that's the systemic racism. It's so subtle to those of us who don't ever have to think about that. I love what you're saying about this concept of privilege. I mean, it's it's really white privilege. I mean, I have gone into dealerships and not been taken seriously, but it wasn't like they saw me as a threat. They just didn't take me serious, you know, but I've never been followed around in a, in a department store that they thought I was going to, you know, steal something. Maude Asbury, just a kid going for a jog. I have no fear whatsoever that my kids can go for a jog. I'm not really worried that I automatically attract harm and violence. There's a singer-songwriter. She was going to play our house next week, and obviously can't, but uh, African-American, unbelievable. First time I saw her in Kansas City, she said something which really caught me. There were several other African-Americans in the room. I mean, she's really fantastic, and she talked about going to England for the first time. She didn't feel the weight of her skin color the way she felt at home. And I flinched a little bit because we're like, that's really powerful. And all the African-Americans in that room, you could just see them nodding. I mean, it was like that, that, that was clearly their experience that everywhere they went in the United States, they walked into rooms and they were looking to see if, if they were safe. We never do that. Never had to walk into a room feeling that weight. So during the presidential primary process, when Pete Buttigieg was still in the race, there was a prominent writer for The Root magazine, Michael Harriet, who wrote this scathing piece called Pete Buttigieg is a lying motherfucker. 
<laughs> and as a big Mayor Pete supporter, I of course clicked on the article to read it so I could defend him. And I have to really credit Michael Harriet for his writing style because he made it so obvious that he wasn't accusing Pete of of being that you know an obvious racist. He wasn't even really accusing him of being racist, but he was pointing out that what Pete was saying was, and it, he was talking about a specific quote Pete had said, and I'll share it in a minute. But that Pete's quote was so naive and so white that you know it sounded decent and it would sound plausible, but it it did not reveal the true problem, which is the institutionalized, the systemic racism that permeates our American society and prevents African Americans from being able to have the equality that that they should have, that, that America supposedly promises. Here's the quote. Kids need to see evidence that education is going to work for them. You're motivated because you believe that at the end of your education there is a reward. There's a stable life, there's a job, and there are a lot of kids, especially in the lower income minority neighborhoods, who literally just haven't seen it work. There isn't someone who they know personally who testifies to the value of education. Michael Harriet's point to Pete was that it's not the lack of good black people that you know Pete sort of implied in his answer. It was it was this lack of equal opportunity. The the most harmful racism in our society is the racism that shows up in those institutions. It's it shows up with more African Americans being incarcerated for the same crimes as their white counterparts. African Americans getting longer sentences for the same crimes. Fewer African Americans having access to health care. Poorer schools in predominantly African American neighborhoods. Gerrymandering to keep the white vote in power. Lower pay for the same job to African Americans than to their white counterparts. It just shows up again and again, and the problem is not seeing that that is the racism that we really need to be fighting. And I think what you're talking about in terms of this white privilege, and this is true about a lot of white liberals, this is my explanation, I think, about the civil rights movement as having a unintended consequence. I mean, there's no doubt that the Civil Rights Act needed to happen. The Voting Rights Act needed to happen. We need to not have that struck down by John Roberts. That, that was bullshit. But the Civil Rights Act was absolutely necessary. But what it did is it redefined for so many whites, including white conservatives and but white liberals as well, that racism then became the people who opposed the civil rights movement. There was a, a senator from Alabama, I think, in 1950s who was on the stump using the N-word just openly saying that, you know, if these civil rights workers get their their way, it's going to undermine this. Every red-blooded person here knows what to do. You know, it was a call to Klan violence. It was a call to, to terrorism. After 1964, you didn't see that kind of overt kind of thing. I mean, obviously, that's where the Southern strategy came from. You started to use coded language until Trump came along. I mean, you really, you, it was always right. about states' rights and, and uh, respecting our heritage and all this kind of stuff. It became that kind of coded thing. But the, for everybody, and I'm, I'm including myself in this, 
then racism became those people who did lynching, people who supported segregation. Since I didn't support any of that, I couldn't be racist, you know. There's just no way we can really understand this unless we force ourselves to recognize we are privileged, we don't get it, and we absolutely have to recognize that it is systemic throughout all of our institutions, throughout education, throughout the healthcare system, uh, our churches. I still remember one class where I had a a woman from Nigeria, Mm -hmm. a young woman from Nigeria, and I had a a kid who was born in, in Mexico. I wanted to assume that those two kids over there were... They were, they, they dressed kind of preppy. These were, these were maybe high school students who were getting ahead by taking uh, college courses. And here were these immigrants who were, I thought, I'm going to have to work harder to help them. Right. As this unfolded, I know, you know, those two uh-huh. immigrants, the Nigerian and the, and the kid from Mexico were two of my better students. I mean, they got it. I mean, they absolutely, and it wasn't just that they were reciting rote stuff. They were able to analyze the information that I was given. Those two white kids over by the window were the worst students I've ever had. I recalibrated based on new information, but why did I assume that, you know, those immigrants were somehow less intelligent? That's not a conscious thought on my part. Right. That's there. So I'm, you know, I'm as much of a part of the problem as anybody out there. You know, it's just, I may be more aware of it and fight it, but that's part of the problem. Yeah. A very good book, if you haven't read it, is called um, Rising Out of Hatred. Eli Zaslow of the Washington Post wrote the book, but he interviews, and it's the story of Derek Black, who was primed to be the next, you know, the next heir for the white nationalist movement. And I know of him, but I haven't read the book. It's a great book. It's a, he does such a good job of telling the story. A thing that, that comes out in that book over and over again is this true sense of fear by white people of losing their power in society. I mean, that is what this is all about. Some bogus stat about crime or about, you know, their use of welfare or those are all just the things they use to justify their fear that white men in particular will no longer be a majority and right. therefore will lose their power and standing in society. And the best message out of that book, there is no such thing as non-racist. You are either racist or you're anti-racist. Yeah, you know, one of the the best examples about that, I think, is reading some stats on the judicial system and racism. Uh, Blacks and whites use drugs at about the same rate, and yet the arrests for people of color is higher. Uh, They're more likely to be arrested, they're more likely to be convicted, and if convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. And they're more likely to be on death row, and yeah, everything. For so many people, and we know some of these people, um, racism is an overt hostility. That's the only, it's a conscious hostility to people of color. If I'm just uh, trafficking in stereotypes, or if I'm just, you know, making fun of rap music because I don't like it, that's not, doesn't make me a racist. If you look at those stats that I just talked about, about being more likely to be arrested, we know, in fact, that many of those police officers who are arresting young people of color for carrying drugs are of color themselves. We know, in fact, that there are prosecutors who are of color. We know that the juries, in most cases, are not all white juries that are doing this, or the judges that are doing this. Kamala Harris is a great example of this, right? I mean, here's a person of color who actually is criticized for some of the prosecution she did, and I've always looked at that and said, 
she was participating in a system and that system is racist and maybe she should have done more to stand up against it. But don't assume that she is herself malevolent because she was actually prosecuting people that the system said to prosecute. But if, if we stand by and watch that and realize that and know that in fact, people of color are more likely to be arrested, more likely to do longer time, that's a systemic racism thing that we should be. And I agree with you completely. Just noting that and saying that's bad. Yeah. And it may make me feel better to say I'm opposed to that, but it, it means putting pressure on elected officials, it means voting, it means asking hard questions of even people we like in elected. I mean, I'm thinking about my own governor here in Colorado, who not necessarily on race, but on, on some of these other things, I think, well, I like him and I think he's a good governor. I think he needs to be questioned about some of these things. And that's something we need to do a better job of, uh, especially on issues with race, because my sense is what we just saw with with in Georgia, um, and as several people posted on social media, he got arrested or they arrested him and are prosecuting them, um, not because they saw the video, but because we saw the video. Exactly. Because it became an outcry. And so it's we know, in fact, that a lot of these happened without somebody being there to film it, going back to the 60s. I mean, that has happened so many times. But we have been able to, in almost all those cases, there's been a plausible deniability, right? If you just look at that individual case, that jogger, they had just seen the jogger looking into a home that was under construction and there had been some robberies. You could make the argument there was a, I mean, it doesn't excuse anything after that fact, don't get me wrong. But that's how this has worked in all of those racial situations. Right. There's always been a plausible, uh, as you've dig into this particular case. Michael Brown was not obeying the police officer in Ferguson. Um, you know, that kind of thing. There, there, right, there are right. elements of right. that where you can say, okay, well, maybe it wasn't racism, but if you look at it bigger, if you look at it systemic, then, then you say, wait a minute, this is... Well, and really all you have to do is say, what if that kid's white? Right. But there are institutions that should be the ones to really bring this out. And the media and the church are two right. huge ones right. for doing that. And I don't know if you've been following uh, Dwight uh, McKissick, I think is his name, um, who African-American uh, Southern Baptist preacher who is right in Al Mohler's face about this. Essentially that. I mean, it's really, there's an interesting schism happening right now with black churches who I think have tolerated white racism in the Southern Baptist Church because they felt like that they were being extended leadership roles and they were being allowed in and then to watch Mueller turn around and uh, endorse Trump. Uh, very, you know, that that just, it, I, that will be an interesting thing to watch. One other thing to add to this mix, um, and I need to go find this article. I read this a couple of years ago. It was about a psychological component that they were tracing back to like late 19th, early 20th century. There was something in there about how white people psychologically perceive black people as a threat. Yeah. And they were describing it in the context that, I mean, like, and again, this is at the back of the brain. This is not at that conscious level. Who was it? Was it Harry Reid that referred to, to Obama as articulate and clean? Right. Honestly, we say that about athletes, you know, he's so articulate. That is a very racist thing to say, but it doesn't seem racist no. until you until you really think about it and go, well, are you saying that because you're not expecting 
a black guy to be articulate? Yes, right. that is why. I truly believe I am not racist, but I've grown up with a thinking that doesn't always allow me to recognize where I say or do things mm. that to, to anyone of color, they would say, but that is racist because you yeah. somehow have looked at me differently. Even when Obama uh, was president, you had people who were his allies, people who were clearly voting for him, saying things about him um, that were acting as if that it was odd for a black man to be as articulate and thoughtful and smart. We read autobiography of Malcolm X. One of the takeaways that Lisa had, and I thought it was a really good one, was in there, he talks a lot about these people who happen to be drug dealers and they happen to be doing these other kinds of things. And he talks about their grasp of everything from economics to logistics to just how smart these guys were. But in their system, they're not horrible people. And that was Malcolm X's point too. Here are these incredibly clever people who in a different context are going to school in engineering or, you know, our CEOs of companies because they're very adept at, at how to sell something or how to move product or something like that. And yet in this context, that's what they could do. And back to Chris Rock's point about uh, Barack Obama, it wasn't as if somehow black people had finally evolved to the point that they were good enough to be president. It was just that white people had, had evolved enough to not be completely racist, you know? Right. right. <laughs> is absolutely true really speaks to how difficult this is ever going to be to really get to, yeah. to for our society to really evolve to the to the to the place where where we were hoping we were going with the civil rights movement you know maybe in some ways this revelation that we've had the last couple of years about how racist we still are as a society is 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 healthy you know in a sort of <laughs> sickening way but but it it is healthy to recognize that we that we really are not evolved, not even in close. Yeah. We can throw sexism in here too, by the way. Oh, easily. Um, <laughs> um, and you know, today we've really focused on the racism toward African Americans because that is where so much of our dark history began, with slavery and then the the rise of the KKK and. But this white nationalist mindset that is being mainstreamed currently is really aimed at all people of color and is something we have to actively fight against no matter who it is aimed at. Who should be the people leading the charge? Christians. There are plenty of good Christians out there who are, who are anti-racist, I believe it. Right. But the fact that there is a Christian right and there's not really a Christian left that's yeah. vocal and, and moving the needle on this is frustrating. And I'm, and I'm afraid that while I, I agree with you that the church should be leading it, I'm not sure that... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to amend that. that. It's not so much that I think they should. It's just that based on their, their theology, yeah, correct. They, should be, they should be supporting that. You know? Yes. Um, that it, it's, it's, a, it's a true shame that it is not just not really taking the charge, but in so many ways is contributing to the lack of understanding and is yeah. and contributing to the racism that, and the divide that we see constantly. Like yeah. That's probably more what I should say. <laughs> no, I, I, no, I agree. Thanks for joining us today. Please follow both of us on Twitter. You can find me at Lori Volkman, L-A-U-R-I-E, V-O-L-K-M-A-N-N. And you can find Brad Rayleigh at Streaks Friend, S-T-R-E-A-K-S, 
F-R-I-E-N-D. Obviously, the racism we still see throughout American society and even across the world is not going to end because of a 30-minute podcast. But we have to change this course because it's neither sustainable nor should it be desirable by any human with a soul. So we'd, we'd love to hear from you, love to hear your thoughts, hear your experiences. Let's have a discussion. Let's talk about this. And we'll leave you with this beautiful prayer sung by a young man and posted on Twitter following the riots in Minneapolis. I'm a young black man doing all that I can to stand. Oh, but when I look around and I see what's being done to my kind every day, I'm being hunted as prey. My people don't want no trouble. We've had enough jungle. I just want to live. God protect me. I just want to live. I just want to live.